Hey, it's Peter Kafka with a quick note for people who are coming to the Sold Out Sam B. Live podcast next week. We're going to start a little bit earlier than we expected. We're going to start at 7 p.m. on the dot. If you want to get a drink, come at 6.15. Again, we're starting the Sam B. Live podcast a little bit early. Get there at 6.15 for drinks, and the show will start promptly at 7. It's going to be great. We will see you there. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network here at Vox Media New York headquarters. I am talking to Tony Hale. Who is Tony Hale? If you spend a lot of time listening to a podcast like this, you might know that Tony Hale used to be the CEO of Chartbeat. If you spend a lot of time reading Recode, you might know that Tony Hale is an occasional contributor and big thinker about the internet. Tony Hale is making a face at me. Tony Hale has a new job. He is the CEO of a new startup called Scroll. I spent some time with Tony a year ago trying to explain what Scroll is. So I figured it's a year. Let's let's hear from Tony himself in his own words what Scroll is. Basically, the short version is you're going to save the internet, right? Or at least save journalism. That's the attempt. Yeah. yeah I mean, well, how's it going? Is it safe? Uh, any day now, I think we should see the green shoots of recovery. <laughs> I think I forced you into talking you about really this did. a year ago, well before you were ready. It seems like you're about ready to start showing people well, what you're doing now. I've been like I've been a little bit more open recently. Yeah. Well. It's always frustrating when I see your name in my inbox because... You're not the only person who says yeah. that. Most people are my family. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it's we, I think, had only just put the company together and we were trying to be circumspect, even fly under the radar. And then suddenly you turn up and you're like, I've talked to everyone. I know everything. Come in here and tell me everything. And I was yeah. like, oh, dear. That's, that's my trick. Yeah. I only know half of it. Exactly. Like and then bit. I just kind of fill in the gaps like a fool. Um, so, yeah, that was that was a year ago. And since then, we've basically just been uh, doing a lot of building, a lot of working with different people. Let's and, tell um, people what scroll is. Yeah. Yeah. So, basically, uh, the thing that I've been obsessed with for the last decade or so has been finding a business model that works for quality journalism. I kind of think it's important for democracy and a whole bunch of other stuff. And Free press needs to be funded somehow. Somehow. And we can, you know, we have a long history of philanthropy and uh, entrepreneurs buying things or from having businesses that are unrelated to media supporting it, like Kaplan did for the Washington Post for many, many years. But in the end, it would be quite kind of nice to have a business model that pays for itself. And a chart Used to have one. Used to have one in terms of... Well, used to have a, uh, a business model around selling paper that needed stuff printed on it. There, was, was, there were newspapers and they made money. They were, they were a good they business. They were a good business. That went yeah, away. Like the, going uh, away. Catherine Graham was probably the most successful CEO, uh, media CEO, and probably one of the better ones of the, of the last century. Um, so, yes, that was a great business. That, the print business is declining 20% year on year. Yeah. Um, so that's not going anywhere. Digital media is facing its own challenges. And the interesting thing for me was looking at the, kind of the main problems. And on one side, you have the traditional business of advertising where you've had well you now have digital gross spend going predominantly to the platforms to, to Facebook and Google. So in twenty fifteen it was seventy two percent of digital people are gross spending spend. money on advertising online but they're spending it on Facebook and Google not exactly on they're spending it and at the very least through sites. those part uh-huh. through those parties. And that's going up towards eighty seven percent they think by twenty twenty. So you have one problem which is like the old business model isn't is looking fairly precarious. And whilst some people are growing they're growing in a kind of zero-sum way, which is they're growing within a pie that is shrinking. And then on the other side, I saw this other really interesting thing, which uh, everyone in Europe was particularly freaked out about, which was kind of the rise of ad blocking. Because what had been happening was in our desire to kind of capture more and more of this kind of shrinking ad revenue, uh, we were going for formats that were only kind of bigger and more intrusive. Jamming was, bigger and uglier and louder yeah, ads. And, like, and it, there's a Moore's law of advertising, which is that ad formats double in frustration every 18 months. Um, so we go from the static image to the video pre-roll to the autoplay to the autoplay with sound on because apparently we want that according to Facebook. Uh, still so still no autoplay with video, no autoplay video with sound on Vox Media. Well properties. done. You are I'm, ahead of the game or behind. I, I need to check so every day to make sure it's not the case, <laughs> but, but we haven't had it. So I'm hoping that's the case. You're yeah. welcome, Internet. Thank you. Uh, thank you for, for flying the flag. Um, so, yeah, so you had, you had that issue which is leading to ad blocking. And uh, the rates over here are like generally on desktop are like 15%. But in Germany and so forth, they're 25%. And so – Wait, I know the answer. You get people to pay for content instead of relying on ads. 
So sure, that is great. And people have been doing that successfully for the top 5% of their audience or so. And big publications of Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Times, Washington Post have convinced people to pay to varying degrees. Yeah. Smaller publications, uh, Jessica Lesson at The Information has done this successfully. Ben Thompson has a newsletter, a strategery. We, there aren't many more examples. Exactly. And this is the challenge. You have, you have a kind of – for your large news organizations, you have basically uh, your top 2% or so will pay for anything or nothing. Yeah. So I think the New York Times is about 1.8% of their audience's digital-only subscribers uh, and so forth maybe. And maybe another 3 or 4% actually see the paywall because most people never see the paywall. Um, because so, they're and, only grazing. Yeah, stories. like the majority of people come once a week and read one story. So access models work really, really well for your super fans, but they don't solve the problem of how to replace casual fan revenue, which is the revenue that advertising is driven for, for the industry in general. And so the interesting question for me was – on the one side, you have a precarious business model of advertising for casual fans. On the other side, you have a whole bunch of people. You have 236 million people who've put up their hands saying, we don't want this experience. Those um, people who's, who's who've r- downloaded an ad blocker, using yeah. an ad blocker as they go. And so the interesting question for me was, instead of thinking of these things as two separate problems, why not think about one of them as a solution to the other? In that let's stop saying ad blocking is evil and wrong and we're going to try and stop it and, and stop this. We're going to treat it instead of not as a problem but as a consumer signal. And our job then is to say how do we make ad blocking better? And so scroll in some ways was uh, uh, is our attempt to say in the same way that TiVo was a consumer signal for uh, that led to Netflix and that Kazar and Napster and LimeWire were consumer signals that led to iTunes Music Store and Spotify – then ad blocking is a consumer signal that can lead to scroll, which is how do we get a better ad-free experience across premium media across the web so that someone can pay five bucks a month and not want to stab their own eyes out every time they have to view media. So the thesis is you are going to allow people to pay someone some amount of money, I guess you some amount of money, which you'll then pass on to publishers. And then I go to the New York Times but don't see ads yep. or I go to Vox Media and don't see ads. Yep. And so Vox Media or New York Times takes the money that they get from you and they they lose the ad money because yep. they're not showing that impression. But they're getting money from me yes. passed on to you. Yeah, and that's actually the hard part Yeah, because the consumer side is, is in some ways relatively simple. There's a bunch of areas where you can make ad blocking better. For example, the – Rates on desktop are like 15% uh, or so, but the rates on mobile are about 1%. And the reason it's not because people don't, not because people love ads on mobile, they hate ads on mobile even more than they hate them on desktop. It's because people consume content within social um, on mobile where ad blocking doesn't tend to work. And so you can do things where you say, okay, we can make ad blocking work on mobile. There's a whole bunch of other stuff you can do to make that better. The hard part is how do you do something in a way that works for publishers too? Because you've had kind of two different approaches. You've had an approach which is, which is kind of like the Adblock Plus or the kind of Brave approach, which is we're going to try and do something in an unsanctioned way, get a whole bunch of users together and then use those users as leverage to try and persuade publishers to accept our terms. And I believe that those people have never met a publisher in that regard. And the other way to do it is to do the hard work of trying to work out what it is that was, is a viable model for publishing going forward, put those deals together, and then launch. And so go the, the trick is for the publisher, how do I figure out what it's worth for me to not show these ads? Sure. It's the opportunity cost of revenue. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, by the way, there's a, there, you see versions of this in video where you, Hulu is $8 or yeah. $9 with ads, 14 or $15 without ads. And there's two different things going on, right? One, they're getting paid for the opportunity they're, they're not getting to show me an ad. And also they want to sort of establish with the consumer – that it's better for you to have ads, that it's it's a better deal for you to, to watch these ads. They would still rather have that advertising business than not. I So let me put it like this. In If you look at – I don't know about Hulu's economics uh, individually, so I can't speak to that. Uh, I could tell you that with most other businesses, the money they make from converting someone into an ad free is way more than they make from advertising. If you look at Spotify, the number one reason why people convert to a paid Spotify premium is because of they want to yeah, but spo- yeah, I mean the Spotify thing's a little different because they've why? always because their ad business has always been a bolt on. It's it's not it was the not, thing it's, they, it's, they started they started with, with it, but it was always going to be a paid subscription service. The economic the 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 underpinnings of that business have always been about getting people to pay. The ad business is sort of a the same is true along. of Pandora, it's of Twitch, all of these all of these businesses. Yeah, but the newspaper the business has always had 
you pay us and we show you ads. It's a dual revenue. Absolutely. Stream. And the problem, of course, is that when you actually look at the economics of, the, uh, of that advertising, it's pretty shocking these days. I mean, if you take, let's take the top 80 publishers, the DCN publishers in, uh, in the U.S., they make a total of $7 billion in digital ad revenue across about 234 million uniques, which means the total aggregate average revenue per user is about 2 bucks 50 All of them together make 2 bucks 50 a month per user. From ads? From ads. Right. Not great. It's not great. And it's also relatively easy to beat that with a subscription model. So that's the theory for why the publisher should do it. And, and as the consumer, I'm a little confused because I can either pay for an ad blocker, have no ads, if I really love the New York Times, I'll pay them 10 bucks a month. I'm confused about this, the middle ground that you're pitching to me. Sure. So one, you can pay the New York Times, and what you get from the New York Times is access plus ads. Like there's nothing in the New York Times <coughs> that gets rid of those ads. And secondly, you can use an ad blocker. And there's a few things that will, that will happen with that. One is it'll be great on desktop to a certain degree. But there's a few things going on when you do that. First thing, there's a, there's a quality problem in terms of when you see ad reinsertion happening increasingly with publishers, people are stitching in ads on, uh, on pre-roll and so forth. Where you don't have that, you often have blank spaces or like you have to wait for 15 seconds of blank air time before the video starts. You have the fact that the ad blocker companies make their money from inserting ads into your ad-free experience. So you have that on the one side. And on the other side, you have publishers increasingly going for content blocking. It's like, hey, you've hit, you've hit this site. Right, you've you got a spy versus spy thing. Yeah, so you have, you have a game of whack-a-mole effectively on that side of things. And then the big thing, which is like most people consume their content in mobile and most people are not able to ad block the content that they want on mobile. Even though both Apple and you know, Android have said, yeah, you can go ahead and create Sure, but like look at the rates. Yeah. yeah. So that's all the theory. That's the theory. Does the product exist yet? Can I, can I use it? Yeah. Yeah, it's not, it's not launched yet. My it's God, not launched. No, no. So, I have no intention of launching until for quite some time. Well, how, how, we, I talked to you a year ago and you'd raised money. Yeah. So how far off is it quite some time before you launch? So we want to do a beta in Q1 of next year and a launch in the second half of next year. So you got money from the New York Times, News Corp? News Corp, Are, Corp, are, are, are from, all those publishers um, participating? They have all been incredibly helpful on, on this side of things. We're going to do an announcement a little bit later, but I am – Learned with you, Peter, yeah. that you try to push me too soon to tell what I uh, to tell these things. It's almost like we have an abusive relationship. It's true. It's true. Um, Thanks for coming at nine o'clock, by the way. I know. Not even any whiskey here as well. So yeah, we're going to be doing an announcement on a bunch of publishers. I think in the middle of next month. And is this an app, or I just I'm on the internet. I go. I click on a New York Times story. I'm on Facebook. I click on a New York Times story, and because I've registered with you, you. See, this is, yeah, this, is, this is the other key when you look at this thing. One, there's the different challenges that you have. One is the problem of beating the opportunity cost of revenue. So you have to be able to have a model that can beat that. And the problem with that is that you have to be able to do it. You can't do it with micropayments because micropayments and casual fans don't mix well. Because, and mainly because people don't have a problem with advertising per se. They have a problem with friction and micropayments just friction. So you need a single payment solution which you can distribute to publishers. That's one problem. The other problem is... People have said in the past, many of the corpses in the graveyard that I have to wade through on a daily basis who've attempted this thing have come at this by saying, I'm going to create this amazing app. It's going to be a beautiful app. And all you have to do to use it is change everything about how you discover content. And that, to me, is not a viable solution. And so the way that Scroll works is... You're talking about, so come sign up for this product, download this app, which you don't use already, yeah. and then things will be great. Yeah, and that doesn't, just doesn't tend to scale. It can make a very beautiful experience that no one uses. And so the way that scroll works is you don't have to change anything about what you do. You sign up for scroll, and then how, whether, you, whether you come to content from Facebook, from Twitter, from an email newsletter, you hit that site. And when that site loads, it's beautiful, clean, ad-free. Hello, Peter. You realize you're a scroll or a subscriber. How awesome are you? Enjoy this ad-free experience. Basically, except without the messaging because that would be friction. Good. All right. So we'll talk in a month when you save the internet. We'll talk in the right time. All right. Let's hear from an advertiser, which supports this free podcast, and we'll be right back. Recode Media is brought to you by The Art of Shaving, which knows the secret of a well-groomed guy, because they are The Art of Shaving. They were founded in New York in 1996, so they've been helping guys look their best for more than 20 years. You've seen these guys. They've got stores all over the place. You go in there, they'll give you one of those straight razor shaves. They're awesome. But they also sell products that you can use by yourself at home. They've got your total routine covered. Shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. Award-winning products formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients. Stuff you want to put on your skin and featuring pure essential oils. 
Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service, which is a fancy way of saying they will deliver the stuff to your house so you can save on your favorite products and you never have to worry about running out. My listeners will receive 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code MEDIA. So if you want to get this offer, go to artofshaving.com. Use my special promo code MEDIA. That gets you 15% off your first order and free shipping. Visit artofshaving.com for the special offer. Or if you just want to go see these guys in person, they are happy to help. Tell them Recode Media sent you. And now we're back. Tony, what's what's wrong with advertising? You used to work in the advertising business, right? Chartbeat was, was basically a product that helped people who were in the business of delivering ads. I don't think there's a problem with advertising per se. I really don't. Good, because um, that pays my salary. Well, some of my It pays salary. some of your salary. We'll ask me again in five It pays years. for this room. I think that people have a problem with friction. And what we've, one of the interesting things that we've seen has been the kind of transition in the kind of advertising moments that people have had to use. So there's kind of three moments where advertising can be done. There's advertising at the moment of choice, which is I'm choosing what content to consume next and I'm presented with commercial opportunities and editorial opportunities. This is the ads on Google when you search for something. It's actually the ads in Newsfeed. It's why Newsfeed works so well for Facebook. It's like I'm choosing what to consume. There's an ad there. It works really well. Same thing with like Vogue magazine ads, like ads at the moment of choice. Then, and these things are considered pretty good by consumers. People seem to be fine with that. Then you have ads at the moment of adjacency. These are the kind of traditional kind of display ad, ads. It's like I've chosen content and whilst I'm consuming this content, there's going to be adjacent ad- advertising. And then there's advertising at the moment of interruption, which is I've chosen what I want to do and the advertising is now asking me to do something other than that. And increasingly, with a few things that have been happening, so one, you've had the move to mobile, which has kind of removed all the spaces for adjacency and so forth. You've had the rise of viewability, where we've said we can't hide the ads on, at the bottom anymore. They have to be kind of front and center. This is advertisers and publishers getting together and saying, all right, publishers are only going to charge advertisers when people actually see, see ads, ads, which is a funny thing to say in 2017, but it's still an issue. Yeah, it's still a huge issue. And, uh, and so you've had these things, and then you've had the, the fact that video ads are the only ones that make any money right now. Uh, which means uh, they're generally pre-rolls, they're interruptive, and, uh, and so forth. So every ad, every kind of structural thing in advertising has been pushing us towards more and more of a format where we say, you have chosen what you want to consume. Now let us distract you from doing that. And it is that friction, not the act of a commercial messaging itself, that people have a problem with. If you look at the top two most annoying ads and you look at the, the research data, the first one is kind of pre-roll ads. The second one is actually uh, those bounce exchange ads. So the ads where you think you're about to leave the page and you kind of make a mouse movement and suddenly this huge pop-up right. comes Aha, out. Aha, gotcha. Gotcha. Like put in your email address or check out this thing. Yeah. Like those two things frustrate people more. Because they get more interruptive and more shouty. I mean if anyone yeah. listens to radio anymore, like the ads there are bananas, right? Because yeah. they are assuming that you are completely tuned out. So they're literally shouting at you. Yeah, they raise the volume on these things. They do all these things. So like that – interruption of you from your flow, from the thing that you want to do is as a problem. And on the other side of things, it's not making that much money. It really isn't. Like if you look at the New York Times, who's probably making more money than almost anyone else on an ARPU basis, they make 16 cents a month from their users on an advertising basis. 16 cents. Across all their users. Yes, it's an average yeah, revenue yeah. user. Um, now, there's a Pareto curve of that. So the top 10% are probably responsible for, if they're like any other publisher, 50 to 70% of, uh, of revenue, maybe even more. Uh, and so you have to be able to kind of handle that. But what is clear is that you can find revenue models that are relatively inexpensive for consumers and can consistently beat the opportunity cost of revenue for publishers. I want, I want to have more big thinky talk with you about, about advertising and the Go state of it. media. But, but I want to ask you about how you got here, first of all. I think a bunch of people know that you used to run Chartbeat. Yes. Again, if you're probably listening to this podcast, you probably have seen Chartbeat or are familiar with it. But it's was providing real-time analytics mm-hmm. for internet publishers. Yep. So I used to describe it as, to people who hadn't heard of it as a sort of pachinko, right? You sort of – the screen with, with these numbers flashing on it and you would sort of see in real time who was reading or not reading, unfortunately, your stories. Yeah. It was a mirror to the editors. Yeah, and it was uh, there was a time when when talking when that was a novel idea that even measuring your traffic to your stories for some people was a novel idea, and then certainly looking at it in real time was novel. Certainly, uh, when, we, uh, when we started, it was considered crazy. Uh, a good friend of mine, Martin Isenholtz, who was at the New York Times uh, in the early days, uh, said that if he had tried to implement Chartbeat in those days, he would have uh, got punched by someone. Yeah, I remember telling someone at the New York Times what Chartbeat was, and they looked at me like I was 
discussing some some sort of weird tribal ritual. And the question, and I always had this question myself, which is, why would I want to see my traffic in real time? What what as a writer, as an editor, as an advertiser, what is the point of knowing at this very second, forty three people, five hundred people, a thousand people are clicking on this story? So do you like? Uh, do you think that editors have a valuable position in media? I love editors. Excellent. Some of my best friends are editors. Yeah. And so the thing that an editor does is when you write your story, they, they can say, you know what, you've buried the lead in this thing. This bit is unclear. People aren't going to get to this part. Your headline is completely wrong. No one's going to read that headline. They do all of these things as a f- based on heuristics of what they've learned over the years. What Chartbeat effectively does is does that in real time with the audience, yeah? which is it's saying, like, you know what? You did the story that you really, really cared about, and no one's reading past the first paragraph because you buried the lead. Or no one's clicking on it because your headline was anodyne and So boring. I get the idea of measurement. This is the yeah. thing I've talked about over the years. I get the idea of saying overall, hey, that story you wrote that you're really proud of, no one read it. <laughs> and either there's a problem with the story or maybe it's a problem with distribution or maybe it's a problem with the headline or maybe you should get a different line of work. What I didn't understand was the, the in the moment. I'm not going to sure. rewrite the lead in the moment, right? Yeah, of course you are. People do that all the time. I like so uh, actually the GM of Vox, Mr. Andrew Golis, uh, back in the early days of Chartbeat, and I believe that he was at Yahoo at the time. He would be looking in real time at the uh, referrer traffic, and he would say, "Okay, I've got a I've got a politics story here, and if I have an audience that's coming in from Politico." I know that we can kind of juice up this story with more acronyms. We can make it a little bit more inside baseball if that's the main traffic source. If it's coming from the HuffPo, we're going to kind of bring it, make it a bit more broad. We're going to change even the, the links that we refer to and so forth. I've seen one of the most interesting slash fascinating experiences of my life was watching Glenn Beck do his radio show um, whilst watching Chartbeat data uh, from The Blaze and adapting what he was talking about in real time on his radio show based upon the interest and behavior he was seeing on similar stories on the, uh, on the Blaze. The point is not, like for me, the thing is, is like if you've spent uh, an invested time in writing an important story, a story that's important to you, it's not good enough for you to say, oh, well, I just didn't I'm get done my with it. I'm sending it out yeah, to the world. It's and- done and, and my job is over. That's not good enough. I mean, look, we, you know, I'm an old man, so I had to adapt to these ideas. But, you know, I'm comfortable with the idea that, all right, well, A, B, test a headline in real time. And th- that headline performs better. Let's pick that one. But the idea of going in and tweaking a story, uh, changing a story in any significant way other than sort of like the base packaging around it doesn't, doesn't seem practical. And I get it also if you were in, in back in the days when, when having a homepage really mattered, if you were a very big site, if you were Yahoo!, or Huffington Post, it might make sense to move stuff around based on this story is doing better. Let's feature this more. We know this area of this page does better. Let's move this story into that see if that works. It seemed like the – and still seems like the notion of, of adjusting your content on the fly in real time is not a really productive way to sort of think about making stuff. You end up getting – I'm sort of just hitting that pellet bar over and over. I would, I would say that the majority of behaviors is probably more around promotion and positioning and so forth as you, as you go. And that stuff absolutely, as you uh-huh. say, has value in real time. The other thing that I would say though, because this is something which we could debate for a very, very long time, is that like – is I would argue that journalists – a journalist's job is not to write the important stories. A journalist's job is to communicate the important stories. And if you have not reached your audience with that story, then you have not done your job. And if you're given the opportunity to know that and the opportunity to change it, it is much more efficient for you to change or adapt that story so that it reaches its audience than for you to write an entirely new piece. So now now I feel like we should move into the college dorm session and maybe marijuana would be involved. But, but this is one of those things that can go on forever, right? Because you can argue, yes, it's 2017 and it's not enough to just write the story. You've got to take responsibility for figuring out a way to get it to an audience. And you can say, this is ridiculous. This is just, we're going to chase our own tails. And this is why we end up, we all end up making the same food videos on Facebook in 2016. And then the algorithm changes and it turns out we shouldn't have been making this food. We need to move on to something else. And we're just going to respond to these outside stimuli and whatever, whoever has the dominant platform will set those rules. We should make live video. No, we shouldn't make live video. We should make nine-minute videos. No, we should make shorter videos. And what you should do is, is make stuff that's good. I totally agree. And then figure out, you know, hopefully with the help of you or Andrew Golos or someone like that, the best way of getting it out there. But, but asking 
content maker to constantly on the fly adjust to whatever the new parameters are is, is going to end up with so I think bad results. So I think you're, conf- yeah, you're conflating two things okay. there. Because one, I think that in general, you're absolutely right. I think people should write the things that fascinate them because that's what makes good journalism. And I think in that context, metrics should just be one of a whole bunch of inputs that, that come in. And by the way, I don't think you should ever pay people on metrics. I think that is a very bad thing that gets people down uh, down the path on, uh, especially around creating content, uh, around just creating the same thing over and over again and kills innovation. There's a difference between metrics defining what you choose to write about and the effectiveness of which with which you write. So if metrics is saying only do food videos, only do cat stories and so forth, then absolutely you should ignore the hell out of that and you should try and do the things that you're passionate about and so forth. If you've said like, I've written this amazing thing about ISIS, but no one is reading this thing. And this thing I spent two weeks writing. And if I can spend an hour just reshaping it, understanding with fresh eyes where I see it's not working, where people are breaking off, it's worth it to, of course, to polish. Of course, of course. And this is where like the, the very old school, like I'd never look at metrics and I think the idea of measurement is ridiculous. That, that makes no sense. Why wouldn't you want to know if someone's reading your work? Sure. I mean, I know why you may not want to know that, right? Because it's, it's very de- disheartening. It can be depressing. But, you know, in, and you should think about what those signals mean and maybe you're measuring the wrong thing. But um, And then you brought up ISIS because I think, what, 2015, 2016, that was the most – yeah, heavily read story, most engaged story that you measured across. Yeah, therapy. well, this this is the interesting thing, yeah, which is the the other factor in this is is of course the metrics that you choose, and one of the things that Charpy got a lot of heat for in back in the early days was the fact that we didn't show page views, we didn't show click data at all for seven years. We didn't do this. Uh, we only showed data around engagement. Because we want, we had a very clear kind of like ideology that we wanted people to be caring about the content that people are actually consuming, not just clicking on. So when you start to look at those kind of metrics, you get a very different story than the one that is just like everyone should be doing X and so forth. Because people will click on those stories, but they won't necessarily read them. And when you start to look at things like total engaged time, then yeah, like the the top story in 2015 was. Uh, what ISIS really wants by the Atlantic, which got 55 million minutes of engaged time. Right, and your point was that's a good thing. This shows you that people will read heavy, long stuff. You can't guarantee it, but there's a thing. By the way, I mean, we've talked about this a few times on this podcast, but there's no measurement. There's next to no measurement right now for podcasts. Yeah. um, Which is an interesting... Starting to open up a little bit. It'll open up a little bit. Apple's going to start telling us modicum of information mm-hmm. and it's a li- if someone who spent most of their career making stuff online and where stuff is measured all the time it's a weird place to be in it's uncomfortable but pleasantly uncomfortable do you think the quirkiness of the podcast industry is in is in part because of the lack of metrics yeah i think you know look if we all decided oh shit no, and you know almost no one listens beyond minute 32 of a podcast right these hour and a half two hour podcasts probably go away and that's probably not the worst thing in the world. Or I didn't tweak the advertising, but I, and, and it's going to change eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a little bit freeing right now to know. All right, let's let's just make a thing I like, and because it's almost literally impossible to tell if people like it, let's make more of it. Yeah, like I think everybody in the world is happy with that, apart from advertisers who pay for it. No, I mean, look, I mean, I would rather make things that people are listening to, and if I eventually see data that says, you know what, five minutes into this podcast, people are done. I highly then recommend maybe it's a British accent, podcast. by the way. Tony, that's why we have you on. How did you get to Chartbeat? You didn't start the company, right? I, I considered myself to be employee number one. There was a brilliant uh, man called Billy Chasen, who was the uh, original creator. And then this was out of a, a, a out of incubator Works. called Betaworks. Yes. Still around. Still yeah. around. Still going strong. They recent uh, one of the more recent companies they did was Giphy, which is uh, uh, a very very uh, big deal now. Um, so yeah, they're still going great. So, yeah, so Billy Chasen was this incredible engineer um, and also kind of artist. And he created the early t- prototype of Chartbeat, and then I joined him. And he uh, he relatively swiftly went on to kind of create new things. He made Turntable FM, made turntable which FM, is a huge yeah, like, deal for a week, two a, weeks. It was, I loved it. It was a great, great service. It sh- turntable FM, by the way, also shows one of the challenges of dealing with content providers when you start with the users and don't have the deals. Um, because I yeah, Turntable FM was fabulous. Then he went on did uh, Sticky Bits, and now is uh, is doing great stuff at Facebook. 
Um, so he was the creator, and I always think of him as the founder uh, of, of Chartbeat. And, w- and what were you doing prior to that? Your, your Twitter um, handle says Arctic Tony. So the, the main thing I'd been doing for the four or five years prior to that is uh, leading and managing polar expeditions. How do, how do you get into the leading polar? And you, mean, you don't mean this metaphorically. No. You mean like putting on the, the gear? Yeah, putting a big heavy sledge behind you, a couple of skis in your feet, and walking slowly into whiteness. Yes. I'm looking at you like... Like you seem like an odd person, but I, I you seem very, normal. I had very weird twenties. Basically, I came out of university. I competed in a round the world yacht race. Then nine eleven happened, and I could speak Palestinian Arabic, and so I went to work on a Middle Eastern international terrorism desk, doing kind of like security consulting and for then when you for a company called Control Risks, uh, which is kind of like a. But if you get kidnapped anywhere in the world, you're going to call us. You were an action hero. I was not an action hero. I was the uh, sandal-wearing geek. You were the um, guy behind the action hero saying, go um, here. I was the guy telling the action hero not to go into this forest in Algeria. Uh, then after that, I uh, got into polar expeditions and uh, had lots of fun up in the cold for, for many years. Is so that not the traditional uh, digital media startup route? But in biz- it's true. Uh, I mean, you could argue. It's true, Peter. That is a true and obvious and you stupid you thing could, you said. You could argue that I, uh, like, when I started at Chartbeat, I don't think I'd had zero normal business experience. I don't think I'd also made more than like $20,000 a year in my entire life at that, at that point in time. But I had an amazing amount of fun. And it turns out that actually a lot of the things that are relevant for um, polar expeditions just transfer perfectly to startups. So one, you have to raise an awful lot of money. This sounds like a medium post. Maybe. I haven't written it yet, though. I'll see if Ev will let me. Put it behind the paywall, maybe. So yeah, you, you have to raise a whole bunch of money on something which seems bizarre and may or may not work out. You then have to plan with other people that are sometimes flaky, like dealing with Russian helicopter pilots and so forth. And then you have to deal with it. And basically everything is risk mitigation as you go. It's like, how do I make sure that I'm still alive two months from now? Did you feel like that the fact that you had a radically different background than the sort of stereotypical... Stanford, CS student who's then funded by Sequoia, it's whatever that traditional sort of Mark Zuckerbergian route, didn't go to Stanford. Was that evident to you while you were running the company that, that you had a different life experience and that was manifesting in the way you were running the company? I think it helped in, in, a, in a bunch of ways. I think – and even like the, the Round the World Yacht Race was – one of the best things for kind of like learning how to like lead a manager team, deal with like a high stress situation and so forth. So that side of things, like I've never had a problem with stress. I've never had a problem with anxiety. I've always been able to know roughly kind of on the team side of things. But also like this is a bunch of stuff I didn't know as well. I remember uh, and I'll this will be the first time I've ever publicly talked about this. My in the very early days of Chartbeat, 2009, I'm dealing with media companies. I don't really know anything about media at this point in time, and I would go into a and I you created to, this thing that you knew a media company would want, yeah. but you didn't really know about a media company. Yeah. That tends to be a fairly normal thing, I think. So a media company would say, say to me something like, uh, well, I don't know how this is going to interact with my DMP. And at the time, I had no idea what a DMP was. And I didn't want to look stupid. Um, tell, us, tell us what a DMP is. It's a data management platform. Uh, ad tech. Uh, it's ad tech. And so rather than saying, I'm sorry, I don't know what this means, uh, and my nascent startup getting kicked out of the room, uh, I'd use something called the broad church uh, answer, where I'd say, well, you know, DMP is a kind of a broad church. What do you mean by DMP? And I basically see. did that repeatedly for the first year until people told me everything that I needed to know about some of the kind of ins and outs of the industry. And so I managed to kind of catch up uh, pretty fast uh, on that. But yeah, like I, I felt like I had a very orthogonal skill set to someone who grown up like through marketing or through sales or through engineering or product. And you did that for how long? Seven years. Seven years. Yeah. Um, company did not get sold. There was not No, it's exit. still going strong. Uh, why'd you leave? So I think two reasons. One, I missed the sense of risk. I had this fabulous executive team. I had a great COO in John Sarif, who's now CEO of Chartbeat. And my job had been less about kind of taking the big risks and more about kind of like setting OKRs for the quarter. And that I, I still enjoyed. I still loved the team, but that was kind of less fascinating uh, to me as a kind of experience. And secondly, I'd had this idea, and it was the idea that I couldn't get out of my head. It was the head idea that you think about in the shower. And it would have been 
wrong for me to have stayed at Chopi whilst I was still passionate about this idea. So I um, I called up my uh, my board members. I spoke to to the exec team. I said, like, this is the thing. This is where I'm at. And they were incredibly supportive. So um, you, you ended up, you can rattle off the stats, but you basically signed up everyone in digital publishing has a Chartbeat account. About 80%. Um, at Vox, we have it even though we roll our own. But everyone's got it. So you, you, I think it's in one way you guys were as successful as you could have possibly could have imagined. The flip side is when you were raising money last year and I was reporting about this, I was asking some folks. And they said, well, the problem with Chartbeat, and we all love Tony. Everyone loves Tony. But, but they didn't really build that business as big as it should have been. There should have been an adver- a giant advertising business. This, this thing should be something that WPP and Omnicom all use or, or own. This thing eventually should have become a, a big ad play. And the fact that it wasn't is a failure. So I would say two things to that. One, Which I've told you before. So pardon? It's, not the first, it's not the first time you've heard that because I've told you that before. It's true. I'd say two things. One, so I'm still an advisor to Sharpbeat, and I can tell you the last two quarters they've had have been their best quarters ever. Um, so they're still growing very, very nicely uh-huh. um, as, uh, as they go, and the CEO is doing a far better job than I ever could have in that regard. But the second thing is that Sharpbeat is a mission-driven company. There was definitely an opportunity for us to go and become a tabula or an outbrain. And I don't think that would have been particularly good for the Because you have all this data. We had all the data, yeah. We so had the why not data use that data to serve up awesome ads or at least lucrative ads or at least ads? Unfamiliar with uh, a company who's had similar levels of data who's been able to serve up awesome ads. The thing that we cared about was how do we make sure that the journalism we care about today is still around tomorrow? And so the things that we tried to do and the, the bets that I made – um, were around how do you try and change the economy, not just in terms of like how do we sell a different kind of ad, but how do you actually make it possible for the industry in general to get better? And that was where the whole idea of time-based selling came from. We were the first to do that. We built the systems to do that. The FT. The idea of saying, you, yeah, the engagement, right? Yeah, you, selling, on a, selling on attention, selling on these things. Which, which was a great idea. It hasn't like, really taken yeah. off, right? I mean, yeah, I mean like the – the FT uh, just posted today, I think, saying they've, uh, they're doing pretty well. But yeah, you're right. It's The idea was sort of the data is definitely there for it. The challenge is, is that you have uh, a kind of a chicken and the egg problem, which is uh, you can go to an advertiser and they'll say, great, how many publishers are doing this? Right. And if, I, if, I, if all the publishers are doing this, then I'm, then I'm in. And then you go to the publishers and the publishers say, wait, how many advertisers can I book a campaign with this quarter? And so there's that chicken and egg problem. In the middle of that, you have the agencies and media planners who, and to kind of re-up themistically, so I can build a great city, but I cannot add a line to an Excel spreadsheet and for a media planner. It is an incredibly difficult task to do. And you have clicks, you have impressions. Right, you can step out, you can say, here's my new novel thing. It's a good way to get in the door, I think, for a lot of people. I've, I've got a new thing to show you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to get someone to sort of re-up and, and pay you over and over for a new metric that no one else is using. Yeah. To change the currency is an incredibly hard thing with so many moving parts. But it's also the right thing to try and do. And I would probably approach it in a different way. But if I had the opportunity between trying to choose something which I thought was lucrative but bad for the web or trying something that was more of a Hail Mary, but if it worked, would make journalism more secure, make the things that I cared about more secure, I'm going to do that every time. So in addition to being an Arctic Explorer and a startup CEO twice over, you are also a, a uh, unpaid columnist for people like Rico. Occasionally, um, when you publish my stuff. We love having you. Was, was that a jab? Is there no, something no, that cool. we should have published? So we, we've, you, can, you can look for Tony's stuff on our site. But um, people love reading it. You wrote something for us a couple years ago. It was a multi-part series about Facebook. And, and uh, there was a picture there of the planets. And the idea was sort of Facebook was the biggest planet. Uh, it was dwarfing us all. And then, and, then, um, and then more recently you had a piece that said, Facebook may finally have to compromise its user experience in order to keep growing. Yeah. And I thought, oh, maybe when I looked at both of them just now, I was thinking, oh, is Tony saying actually that there might be a limit to Facebook's power in publishing and to Facebook's sort of unchecked dominance or – it's, I, was I misreading so it's, that? It's, it's less about dominance, more about Facebook running into some of the same constraints that have been bedeviling publishing as it starts to reach certain limits. So whilst 
So fa- Facebook's revenue growth has been driven largely by two things within Facebook proper, like forgetting Instagram and WhatsApp and these things for the moment. It's been driven by user growth in the West predominantly, uh, which is where the advertising right, uh, revenue is. 2 billion is. users worldwide. Yeah. And it's been driven by newsfeed, which has been the most successful uh, ad unit. And with those two things, they've risen to un- undreamed of heights. Now, the problem is this. User growth is about 1.2% a quarter in the West now. And so if you're just relying on user growth, you're not going to see the kind of revenue growth that you want to, want to, want to do. Amazingly, though, they, they post amazing numbers every they quarter. They do. And they're in some ways as amazed. If you speak to them internally, they're as amazed as, uh, as other people are. But the way that they're doing that is by increasing ARPU, okay, which is their average revenue per user. They're mm-hmm. increasing the price of um, – uh, uh, of their advertising. Which, by the way, if they'd sketched it out, it would have been exactly what they said. We're going to keep growing and eventually yeah. we're going to make each one of these users more and more valuable. Exactly. I mean, this, this is actually the, there's kind of three stages for any company going through this. Yeah, The first is user growth. So it gives you the most flexibility. You can be easiest on like ad load and everything else. It's the go, standard go, go. internet company business exactly. plan. Exactly. Grow. Then you go for ARPU. Then make money. And you try to maximize ARPU. And then after you do, after ARPU, then it's about trying to capture as much value from the value chain. So that's the point we're saying, uh, and this is the the kind of Tyson Foods analogy, which is at a certain point when you've maximized the ARPU that you, that you can, you say the way that I can do this is I can use my leverage to make sure that out of the total margin across this value chain, I'm getting the majority of it. And that's where okay, you so start. So from egg to sandwich, I want to yeah, like I Yeah, well, like I want to have an awful lot of chicken farmers who make just enough to survive and not much more than that. And so that's the kind of – Facebook isn't quite there yet. But that's the kind of – that's the obvious kind of third stage as they, as they go. Because the Facebook story, right, in which they've been telling for a long time is just wait until we get to TV. We're event, there's $80 billion in TV and we're going to – and we have a Super Bowl-sized audience and eventually one day all that money is going to come over here. Yeah, and it's, it's – and it's hugely problematic in some ways. I mean they have – in Fiji Sima, they have probably the best product manager in the company. It's the woman who runs the video for them. Video, uh, working on this. She's brilliant. But faces a number of kind of challenges around video being the kind of revenue driver for them. The problem on the newsfeed side of things is that pre-rolls are the, probably the most successful video ad, ad, ad format. But newsfeed, unlike YouTube, is a passive discovery mechanism. And so if you were to do pre-rolls, you would literally just have a feed of pre-roll things, which no one would consume. And so they have to go with mid-rolls in newsfeed. And the, but the problem is, is that newsfeed, uh, the mid-rolls, people don't tend to get to, or they switch off as soon as they go to and just move on to the next thing. And so we've seen reporting in the, in the newspapers recently, or in, at least in the trade press, around how little money people are making from the mid-roll side of things. So Facebook knows that it has that problem, which is why it's created Watch, uh, which is this whole new tab where they can say, now we can do what YouTube does, which is we can do intent-driven video. And with intent-driven video, we can start to do pre-rolls, and we can start to make some real money around video. Have they said they're going to do pre-rolls for those? They're going to do pre-rolls. You're intuiting it? or I'm intuiting it. Yeah, um, it's got to come. But like mid-rolls are not the way to drive revenue. If, if you remember a few years ago when Facebook first started playing with video, they said, we're going to run the ads after the video. Which, sure. by the way, sounds good. Great for, for the user. So great for user, but also it's, yeah, I like the idea. It seemed like this is – because you can go to the advertiser and say, look, anyone who's watching this at the end, they watch the whole video. They love the product. They feel great about it. Sure. And if, Turns if, out advertisers didn't go for that. Yeah, and, and users don't act like that. Especially in if – again, this is the kind of challenge of the news feed, yeah, which is – the next piece of content is just a, sl- a scroll away. So does the, the fact that Facebook is bumping up against these limits, mm-hmm. does that mean that for the publishers who've been like watching Facebook and Google sort of – you were just describing sort of eat more and more of the pie, whatever metaphor you want. Is that good news for the Vox Medias, the New York Times, the Minneapolis Star Tribunes of the world? Oh, finally there's an opportunity for us or does it not, is that not good? I don't, so I don't think so. I think that what you see here is you see a challenge on the user experience side for, for Facebook to try and overcome, and they're very good at overcoming those things as they go, but it's not something where it's going to change the trajectory of ad dollars. You're not going to see WPP suddenly say, wait, you know what? Facebook is starting to mess with its user experience in some way. And so now we're going to go back and just use, go to traditional media and, uh, and just put all our money there. That's not going to happen as we go. So, 
So their problem does not create an opportunity for the rest of us. And the, well, and this is a kind of interesting thing. There's two schools of thought, yeah? There's a school of thought which says that the platforms are the new cable companies, and we all are the new cable channels on this side of things, and that we can all be as successful in, as media companies as the kind of early CNNs were and, uh, uh, and everything else. And that is one school of thought. The other school of thought is to say that that is completely the opposite of what's really happening here, which is with cable TV, you had intent-driven uh, consumption. Around, and really limited distribution, yeah, right? With real, but, but with real brand affinity. There were high costs of entry. There right. were non-competitive there business were, models. Maybe there were 500 channels, but really there were 50. Yeah. And like to and to start your own channel cost a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of money as you go. And people, and the reason why ESPN gets paid so much money is because of its marginal churn contribution. Like, if you don't have ESPN, then you have a then you have a problem, and so you had all of these things where and the cable companies themselves didn't really provide any value themselves. They were pure pipes. Now, but what you have with the platforms is you have almost the opposite of all of those things. You have less. In, it's not about intent driven with high brand affinity. It's a passive driven experience where people aren't even aware of the creator of the videos that they're consuming most of the time or the or the content. Like I think it's sixty four percent of the time they're unaware of the brand behind uh, the content that they're consuming. You have almost zero barriers to entry, uh, and you have the fact that this content still makes up a minority of the total content that's being consumed on the platform. Right, because we're all consumed with what's the New York Times doing on Facebook, what's the Vox Media doing, but it really it's still cat it's, pictures, kid yeah, pictures. It's a, it's a, or it's pictures of your friends. And so it's a tiny percentage of the stuff that, they, that actually kind of like drives the business. And so all of those things mean that the leverage that any media company has is vastly diminished compared to the cable channels where in the cable, cable era. Uh, and by not having that leverage, over time, margins accrue to the point of control. If you have no control, you have no margins. After the first round of the internet, where a lot of newspapers had, had played around with the internet, put their stuff up for free, maybe they charged, and then things sort of went south. And then a lot of folks said, oh, the original sin was that we devalued our content right away. We made it free or we made it too cheap. And, and um, we're not going to do that again. And then Facebook shows up and not in slow – well, kind of slow motion. They've been saying, give us more stuff, give us more stuff, give us more stuff. And everyone's been saying, our eyes are wide open. We're fully aware of what's going on here and we're going to be very wary. We're not going to make that mistake again. But yet it looks like – was there any way for publishers not to have done what they've done, which is basically sort of seed a lot of their business to Facebook? It feels a little bit like Greek tragedy. Uh, in many ways, the, in both kinds, in the, that you uh, you can fight and you can have heroic efforts. I'm nodding because I've seen Time Bandits and there's some Greeks in that. But that, that that's true. It's it's I'm all it's really all Greek to you. Greek, yeah. The gods define it. Uh -huh. the, the structures define it uh, as you go. And one of the challenges that you've had for publishers is you have a model which is basically around like can we can we capture someone's attention uh, uh, and can we put an ad next to it and you found someone who was able to do that more cheaply and someone who had the traffic. And there's, just, it, there's structural problems in terms of being able to avoid that uh, as you go. Now, some people with niche content can say, we're going to put up a hard paywall and you can do like a Ben Thompson thing or what Jessica's done very successfully with the information. But in general, I would argue that content is a commodity for 95% of people. Content is what happens between 2.50 and 3 p.m. whilst you've got a break between meetings. And putting up friction or trying to say we're going to charge for that when other people aren't. Right. It's really difficult. So the anomaly was sort of that you were able to build a big business on that prior to this. Yeah. The fact that now that's it's become commoditized is sort of actually like, where it should be. If you, if you think of it like this, the, the business has always been around distribution. Okay. The newspaper business was around trucks and newspapers. Like when, uh, when Ben Franklin started one of the first newspapers, he did it because he just needed more stuff to put into the print. Uh, it wasn't because he decided to start a newspaper. Um, and so we went from trucks and paper and barrels of ink to the new distribution, which is the social platforms and so forth. And that's always been where the money is. That's not changed. But you're going to change it. Scroll. I'm trying to. All right. You were cagey, but you're going to make some announcements still this year, and then there's stuff for us to play with early next year? Yeah, I mean, I, I, when we finish this podcast, I'll show you it live. Maybe we'll turn the video camera on for that. Yeah, maybe. All right. The, ch the challenge for us is this, yeah, which is 
in order to make something valuable for consumers, you have to have a critical mass of publishers on board. So because single people don't pay for an ad-free version of they wouldn't pay for an ad-free version of Vox or very few people would and if they would they'd probably pay for something else even more money uh, uh, as, as they go in general when people have tried single site ad-free models they how many publishers do you need for this to work so I don't think of it in terms of numbers of publishers I think of it in terms of content consumption coverage okay so this is actually you're smiling but this is I actually just, I, just the, wanna, I just wanna know how you define um, it because yeah because the, the thing you could do is you could do like I could have a thousand tiny uh, tiny sites uh-huh. And I wouldn't be covering that much of someone's consumption. Uh, So the way I think of it is like this. If you look at the top 200 domains, which if you look from a Pareto curve of consumption is the majority of kind of content consumption in the US. And then you break that out by how much of the total consumption they cover. Someone like ESPN is around 14%. CNN is around 8%. uh, The New York Times is around 4% uh, and, and so forth. And so I think for a beta... I probably need around 50% of content consumption. Five zero. Five zero. And for general launch, I need about 80. Are you there? Are you close to the 50? I'm confident. Now, I'm more con- – like for a longer for the longest time, I thought I was absolutely crazy. I no longer think I'm crazy. All right. Well, um, other people might. Uh, yeah, but you get the English accent, so it sounds good. It does help. Um, Tony, thank you for your time your patience. My this pleasure. was heavy, but good. <laughs> Again, you can you can read Tony. He's available many places, including Recode.net, Arctic Tony on Twitter as well. Oh, every, everyone here knows how to use Google. They'll, they'll find you. Yeah. And scroll.com. Scroll.com. They'll figure that out as well. Thanks again for your time. Thanks to you guys for listening. Again, all we ask um, in exchange for listening to this free podcast and occasionally uh, patronizing our advertisers is that you tell someone else about it. It's cool that you tell me because that's good for my ego. Um, my mom sent me a text this week. She said she was really happy with the Ken Burns interview. I did. So thanks, Mom. I appreciate that. Um, it's better, though, if you tell someone else who hasn't heard the podcast. That way more people can hear it. It's great. But we appreciate your support in whatever form we get it. Thank you, Mom. Speaking of your support, depending on when you listen to this, you may still have time to go get a ticket to the live podcast we're doing with Samantha B. That's next Tuesday, October 24th at Joe's Pub. But we may be sold out, so don't feel bad if you can't. You have me between Ken Burns and Samantha B. Yeah, and Jimmy Kimmel, too. Thanks. Yeah, we make room for people like you, Tony. We're very appreciative of all our guests. You're all awesome. Um, thanks to The Art of Shaving, who sponsored this free podcast. Thanks to Cadence 13, which sold that ad for us. Thanks to my producers, Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson, and my editor, Chris Basil. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week.